So we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2 this morning, and we're actually going to be looking at only the second half of that passage that Steve read to us this morning, because I just wanted him to read the whole thing so we get a bit of context. So that's verse 15 down to the end of the chapter. And we're continuing our series this morning through the book of Galatians. And as you can see on the the title page um, of the screen there, or maybe it didn't get put on the screen there, but this series is called No Other Gospel. No Other Gospel. Because the letter of Galatians is written by Paul to a church that's been infiltrated. It's been infiltrated by a group of people who are claiming that the Galatians, they haven't really grasped the whole gospel. There's a little bit more that needs to be added to it. Just a few things, minor points, and, and then you'll be good. And Paul's response to this is to declare that there is no, there is no other gospel, no other good news other than the one that they've received. This was a letter written to real people who had very real problems. And last time, back in June, when I preached on this, we saw the first half of what Steve read today. Um, It's probably the most famous confrontation in the New Testament. We have these two heavyweights of the early church, Paul and Peter facing off, and we have the purity of the gospel at stake, and the unity of the church is on the line. And we saw when we looked at this how, how dangerous hypocrisy can be when we say one thing and then our lives, lives reflect another, how it can lead other people astray. We also saw how our failure to confront sin is actually a failure to love. We don't love people enough to confront them. And then we finally saw how the gospel is is so much bigger than our failures. And today marks a shift in the book of Galatians. We have the shift. We're moving from, from history to theology. And what do I mean by that? Well, Paul has begun his argument in this letter By laying out the history, he wanted to kind of lay out all the facts so they're all on the table of how we receive the good news of the gospel and why it's reliable, why we can trust it. And he's just finished relating how this conflict that has led to him writing the letter to the Galatians came about and he wants to clarify, he wanted to clarify what happened in Antioch. But now he wants to move to a theological argument. And what that means is he wants to argue from the word of God and reason as to why Gentile Christians should not have to bear these requirements of Jewish law. And as I've kind of said before, and and I I think this is one of the big challenges we face when we're looking at a letter like Galatians, is that it's sometimes hard to relate to these issues. It's hard to relate to the issues that are being discussed here. You know, I don't see this raging debate going on in in this church, or for that matter, the church at large, about whether or not we should be implementing circumcision. And because of this, this can feel a little distant and and kind of frankly unimportant. But the problems that the Galatians are facing is not just an old problem. Something that we kind of leave consigned to the history books and then move on with our lives. It's actually been a reoccurring problem throughout history. Did you know last year marked the 500th anniversary of the Reformation? Do you know why the Reformation had to happen? 
It is for the same reasons that Paul wrote this letter. Now, the key characteristics were quite different. The specific issues and battles that were being fought over during the Reformation were not, were not the same. They were different. But the heart of the issue was the same, that the gospel had been perverted and replaced. The good news had been added to and had become nothing more than a work of humanity. And people needed to be reminded of this truth. And you know, this is still a problem today. The church of North America is in crisis. The church in Newfoundland is in crisis. More and more people are leaving the church. Attendance is ever dwindling. And what has been the response? Well, some churches, seeing this increased perversion in the world around us, have doubled down on the rules. If we could only hold on to this moral standard, then we're going to be okay. We'll just keep all the sinners out. We'll just hold on to this moral standard. Others have opened up their doors and said, well, if the world is changing, maybe we should change with it. Let's be more open to other possibilities. Let's be more tolerant of alternative views. Of how you can be saved. Let's not judge people's personal lives. What they do is none of our business. And there's a lot of confusion because this is a struggle where we vacillate between legalism and license. And it's going on in this church right now. We struggle to see the good news lived out in our lives. We face the pressures of our sin, the arbitrary standards that we set for ourselves and others, our culture demanding that we conform. And so I hope and pray by the time that we are done gazing into God's word this morning, the time we're done looking at this passage, we will be more excited more absorbed, and more completely in awe of how good this gospel is, how good the news is. And that we'll be encouraged to to live lives that are profoundly changed by this wonderful truth. That we won't be hypocrites, people who say one thing, but then go off and, and do another. That the love of Christ would overflow in us. So let's take a look starting in verse 15. And our passage today, I think, to kind of frame it, it really should be viewed as a continuation of what, what Steve read in the first half of it. It should be viewed as a continuation of this discussion of the Antioch episode, that confrontation that happened. And if you use the NIV, if you're a reader of the NIV, you may notice that this actually entire passage is in quotes. I don't, um, and this is because the translators are suggesting that this is actually a summary of, of Paul's address to Peter in, in, in Antioch. And whether this is or not this is the case, because commentators differ on whether it's a summary or an exact quote or all these other things, what is important to grasp is Paul is addressing his argument to Peter and by extension to the Jewish Christians, and, and he's using the term we. He uses the term we. He's emphasizing the shared theology and faith that Paul Peter, and the rest of the Jewish Christians have. Notice it says, we are Jews by birth. We know. We have received. Sorry, we have believed. 
Paul is anxious, and this is particularly after having described the fault lines, because he's just described this big confrontation where he called Peter out, and he's anxious to emphasize that in reality, they believe the same thing. This almost harkens back to if you, if you remember back in early parts of chapter 2, uh, where the gospel is, Paul's gospel is affirmed by the, by the leaders in Jerusalem. So he lays out what they agree on. He lays out what they all can agree on. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Now I want to stop there because I don't want you guys to get thrown off by the term Gentile sinners. Because at first glance, it looks like Paul's making some sort of like vast pronouncement about Gentiles. And we're all Gentiles. None of us are Jews. So it seems like he's, he's saying some sort of pronouncement about Gentiles. But that's not the case here. The point Paul wants to make is that Jewish Christians were born into the Old Covenant. Their Jews as a people were given the law of God. And their worship, they worshipped the true God. Their religion is from God. In other words, Paul and Peter and the other Jewish Christians have been brought up as law-abiding Jews and not Gentiles who were ignorant to the law of God. But he continues, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Remember that we? Paul's argument is that all of the Jewish Christians, everyone agrees, they need Christ. I mean, we put our faith in Christ our hope in Christ, because we all agree that the law is not enough, that it can't save it. It's not our Messiah. But there are kind of two questions I think we need to pause and consider to kind of get, really get this passage. And the first of these is, is, what does Paul mean when he says justified? It's a big fancy word, justified. And secondly, what, what are these works of the law? Because we use these two terms a lot in the, in the, in, in the Christian church, but, but often we don't bother to define them. I think the best way to describe justified is to think of its opposite. Think of the opposite of justified. What is the opposite of justified? It's condemned. If you think of a courtroom, when the judge pronounce, when the sorry, the jury pronounces that they are guilty, and so to be justified is actually to be found innocent, declared in right standing before God. This is not some sort of fuzzy forgiveness where you know, we, we kind of cover over these wrongs that were done and agree to look the other way. No, this is a declaration of innocence. In other words, Paul is saying that no one is declared innocent by the works of the law, but they are through faith in Christ. Which kind of brings us to the second question of, well, what are these works of the law? Well, the law here is basically the sum total of all of the commandments that God has given the people of Israel. From love the Lord your God to don't covet. From burnt offerings to tithing. Every civil, moral, and ceremonial rule that God imparted to his people in Exodus through Deuteronomy. You know, the Torah. Since the Jewish Christians all recognize that they can't be declared innocent, kind of be justified, by the trying to follow all of the rules that God gave them, which is the works of the law. But this is only possible through faith in Christ. Well, what did they do? Well, so we, again, Paul's talking about him and the Jewish Christians, have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. 
You see, the difference between Jewish Christians who have been justified and the rest of the Jewish people is not that the Jewish Christians followed the rules better. They put their hope in Christ. And so they're saved by faith in Christ, not by abiding by these rules. And so the natural conclusion of all this, which Paul kind of lays out for them, is, well, because by works of the law, no one's going to be justified. I mean, in other words, we are justified, we're made right before God by faith in Christ alone. Let me say that again. We are justified by faith in Christ alone. No one, not you, not you, not you, not me, no one can be justified by following the rules, no matter how hard we try. And what makes this really interesting is this statement here is not just Paul's logical conclusion, though it is a logical conclusion to what he's just said. He's actually quoting the Old Testament, a verse from Psalm 143, which is actually a petition to God for deliverance. See, we couldn't save ourselves. We needed a savior. Timothy George, um, a commentator, I think hits the nail on the head here when he says, if the Torah could have produced righteousness before God, why should anyone have turned from Judaism to Jesus in the first place? You see, our hope is not in keeping the rules. Our hope is in the finished work of Christ on the cross. And remember last time I preached how we looked at Peter's hypocrisy? I mean, the Jewish practice, the Jewish believer's practice, was not lining up with their profession. And Paul sums this all up in verse 21 when he says, well, if righteousness came through the law then Christ died for no purpose. See, we're justified by faith in Christ alone, and we cannot achieve right standing before God by following the rules. And this profound truth is emphasized, emphasized sorry, again and again throughout the New Testament. Romans chapter 3, 23 to 24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Ephesians 2, for by the grace you, grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And this is why Paul is going to start chapter 3 with, oh foolish Galatians, how can you, having been given life, turn away from it and try to pull yourself out of the grave? We're justified by faith in Christ alone. But what about the law? I mean, didn't God give it? Wasn't it good? You know, was God lying when he gave it out first time? He's like, this is just a preliminary. Didn't God people guide people to godly living? And if we get rid of it, you know, isn't that promoting sinful behavior? And if that's the case, does Jesus indirectly promote sin? That seems a bit strange. See, in verse 17 we've moved from talking about legalism to the implications of Paul's gospel. And in particular, we have to deal with some of the objections 
that he's facing. Some objections that his opponents have. And they're, first of all, well, what about the rules? What about God's law? Has Jesus abolished it? And, and so is he promoting sin? And then secondly, you know, if forgiveness is available for every sin, and there's no requirement to follow the rules anymore, well, then what's to stop people from just doing what they like? I mean, God will forgive me. And in the case of the second one, we actually know this was happening. This was a real problem. And Paul's actually going to have to deal with this later in Galatians because this was an issue in the Galatian church. On the one hand, they had a bunch of people saying you need to do all, follow all these rules. On the other hand, you had a bunch of people who said, well, we don't have to follow any rules. So let's take them in order. Let's start with the rules. What about the rules? Well, Paul addresses this head on when he asks the question, but if in our endeavor, this is verse 17, to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. See, Paul here, he actually rejects both the premise and the conclusion of this objection. First of all, Christ did not abolish the law. He fulfilled it. And in fact, if you go back to the law after you have received Christ, that's the real problem. That's the real sin. Paul will later say in chapter 3 to the Galatian church, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? How can you, having been declared innocent before God, turn around and say, well, now I need to make myself more innocent? To go back to the law is to say that Christ was not enough. His death was insufficient. It is to declare God to be a liar. This is a much bigger problem than failing to follow the rules. It's like someone giving you a Christmas gift and then you try to pay them for it. That's not merely rude, it's entitled and insulting. You're guilty of breaking the first and greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God. Okay, what do we do with the rules then? Well, Paul wants the Galatians to see that rather than abolishing it, Christ has fulfilled the requirements of the law so that we could live for God. The law, you see, was was never meant to be something that we could achieve. It was meant to point us to the fact that we could never actually live up to it. This is why Paul says, through the law, he died to the law. I don't know how many of you know this, but how many rules are there in the Old Testament? Anyone got a guess? There's 613 rules. 613 rules to keep. And to make matters worse, at the time this letter is written, not only were there 613 rules, there were volumes and volumes of expanded explanations of these rules. So you know that commandment to keep the Sabbath in the Ten Commandments? Well, there were all these sub-rules which delineated how you kept the Sabbath. How do you go about doing this? And then there were commentaries that were written on each of these subcategories of how to keep the Sabbath. And this is why it's so astonishing when, if you look at the book of Philippians in chapter 3, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Blameless. 
all 613 with all the subcategories and all the commentaries on it. Blameless. See, if it was possible to keep the law perfectly, then Paul did it. But he realized that, that he couldn't. He couldn't actually keep the law in its entirety. It was all futile. And he comes to the point where he says, this was all dung. It was manure compared to knowing Christ. But you see, Christ fulfilled this law on our behalf, and now he's our high priest. See, all those sacrifices, all that blood that was spilled to cover Israel, now a perfect sacrifice has been made. And it was made once and for all. As the writer of Hebrews says, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. See, Christ fulfilled the law, and because he fulfilled it on our behalf, we're free. We're free to live for God. And this brings us to the final thing I want us to see from our passage today, dealing with the second objection that Paul faces, and that is faith in Christ means union with Christ. So you remember that second objection? All this grace stuff, you don't have to do anything to earn God's favor. Won't that just lead people to doing what they want? And this seems, on on first glance, a fairly reasonable objection. I mean, the problem of license was an issue in the Galatian church, and it's a problem today. If Jesus can forgive my sins, then, you know, I can go ahead and give in to this temptation. After all, he'll still forgive me. There's forgiveness tomorrow. I might feel bad today, but there's forgiveness tomorrow. Or how how about let's just talk about Jesus' love and forgiveness. Don't tell me what to do with my life. It's my life, my body, my feelings. Who are you to judge? Didn't Jesus say, judge not lest you be to be judged? I mean, how often are we afraid to call sin for what it is because we're afraid of looking like we're being too legalistic. But through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. And I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, Paul says, no, you've missed the point. I died to the law so that I could live for God. I didn't die to the law for no reason. I have spiritually identified with Christ in his death. And now I'm a new creation. I've been born again. I am no longer my own. Though I still live my life in this fallen world with all its problems and temptations, because there are many, I live it as someone who's been unified with Christ. I'm no longer defined by my sin or by the law, but out of my love for Christ. And I live in a manner that gives God the glory. Christ did not give himself up so we could live lives how we want. In his letter to the Romans, Paul addresses this very issue again when he says, talking specifically here about sexual sin, or did you not know that your bo- sorry, in the letter to the Corinthians, not to the Romans. Or did you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. So glorify God in your body. We were bought at the greatest price. 
The goal and our aim is total union with Christ. Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We're saved in Christ, but this faith is not sort of some empty profession. It necessarily changes us. Paul is saying here that the good news of the gospel doesn't lead to sin, because if you truly get it, you realize that the faith in Christ is transformative. If you get how good this message of salvation is, you're going to be changed by it, and you're going to want to please God. You're going to want to be more like Christ. This is not burdensome rule-keeping. I mean, John Piper illustrates this really well, I think, in his book, Desiring God. Fantastic book, by the way. If you've never read it, you should read it. And he gives the example of, his, of how he loves his wife, how he treats his wife. I mean, should he love his wife? Is he obligated to treat her in a loving manner? And yes, he is obligated to treat her in a lovely manner. But if he's only doing it out of obligation, then that doesn't really honor his wife. And he says with regard to giving roses, dutiful roses, that's in roses given purely out of because I should, are a contradiction in terms. If I'm not moved by spontaneous affection for her as a person, the roses do not honor her. In fact, they belittle her. They are this thin covering for the fact that she does not have worth or beauty in my eyes to kindle affection. All I can muster is a calculated expression of marital duty. See, if we really love our wives or you love your husband, and it's not a burden, these are a joy. Are you commanded to love your wife or love your husband? Yes. But this is not that sort of commandment. And it's the same with following Jesus. Jesus actually says to us in Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And this is the point where usually we stop uh, when we quote this verse, but I'm going to continue. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, Jesus actually offers us a burden. He offers us a burden, the possibility of being yoked to him like a pair of oxen. But the burden that Jesus offers is light. It's so much better than the crushing burden of trying to keep the rules. And he's there with us, helping us. See, faith in Christ means nothing less than total union with Christ. This brings us to where I'd like to land today because the question then becomes, what do we do with this? We now understand the passage, but but what does it mean for our lives? This letter was addressed to Christians to remind them of what they had put their hope in to remind them of what the good news meant for their lives. But you know, maybe you're sitting here today and you haven't heard this good news or it's never really clicked. 
You see, the good news of the gospel of Christ, what makes it really good is that it's free. See, God offers us right standing. That means we're declared innocent. Before him, all of our mistakes, all of our failures, washed away. And all we need to do is ask. See, the good news of the gospel is that that we can never measure up. But someone has done it for us. And if we put our hope in the finished work of Christ, then we can be saved. So please, don't walk away from here today without talking to me or to Steve or to someone sitting next to you. Because we would love to tell you more about what Jesus has done. But what if you're someone who says, well, Daniel, I believed. I have believed. I've put my hope in Christ. Well, what, what is the call to action for us? Well, this morning I would like to ask you two questions. And, and the first of these is, do we really believe that faith in Christ is enough? Now, I know we owe it all intellectually assent to this, but my question is, is your life defined by this great truth? Do you ever feel like you have to put on a show? That Jesus, or at least the church, won't accept you if you don't live up to some sort of arbitrary standard? That you have to somehow fix yourself, put yourself together before you can really be open with people? so that your problems at least look respectable. How about when you pray? Have you ever avoided praying because you know in your heart, well, I screwed up today. So, you know, I don't think I can come before God at this moment. I don't feel like it because I feel yucky. Maybe, have you ever despaired because it's like you can't escape your failures do you ever feel like well I failed the last 10 15 20 30 100 times so why bother trying God can't forgive me I'm, I'm too bad my sins are too great I'm too much of a problem or maybe even some of us We look around the room and say, I'm doing okay. Certainly better than that guy over there. Have we ever added requirements to our brothers and sisters, demanding that they conform to some sort of standard that makes us feel comfortable? I don't know about you, but... I have struggled with all of these things. And the truth of the matter is that doing any of them is effectively denying that faith in the finished work of Christ is enough. Do you in your core recognize that you are so absolutely rotten 
that there is nothing you can do to earn God's favor? But, and this is a really big but, that his favor has already been lavished upon you and that you've been declared innocent. I mean, he sent his son to die for you. I mean, he's made you sons and daughters of God where you were once his enemies. Do you think that Jesus' sacrifice is not enough to pay the price for your failures, no matter how big they seem? Do not nullify the free gift of God. Because if we could achieve right standing before God by what we do, then Christ died for no purpose. No point. It was a waste of time. And we can all go home. But thanks be to God that this is not the case. 1 John 3.1 See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. See, the love that God has put upon us is greater than anything we can possibly imagine. So we need to stop trying to earn his favor and start trusting. We need to stop moping and thinking we're failures and start resting in his mercy. And this brings us, I guess, to the second question that I want us to consider today in light of this passage. Have you been changed by Christ? Now, some of you may be looking at me a little funny because I just told you that we're saved by faith in Christ alone. So why am I now asking you, have you been changed? Well, do you remember Paul's response to the objection that he was promoting lawlessness? What did he say? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, still on this earth, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Remember, faith in Christ means total unity with Christ. I think John Calvin puts this best when he says, it is faith alone that justifies. Faith alone that justifies. But the faith that justifies is not alone. See, faith demands a response. If we've truly put our hope in Christ, then we are going to change. We will pursue that change. And this fits really well with our theme for the year. Does anyone remember what our theme for the year is? Be like Christ. Obviously, we need to say it more. Um, Be like Christ. This doesn't mean that we kind of sit around and wait for God to change us, for it to get easy. It means because God has changed us, we strive to be closer to him, to be more like him. All the time, we're keeping our eyes focused on Christ. We step out in faith and trust God to change us. We make it a priority to pursue him. And I don't mean some sort of mystical, I feel close to Christ. I mean, we strive to bring our lives into submission to him. Like an athlete strives to bring his body and train it for the marathon. Learning a truth from God's word in your quiet time, though good, is of absolutely no use to you if it doesn't change how you act. Remember when David preached last week? What was the response of the good soils? Anyone remember? 
It yielded an abundant crop. And this is a problem that we've struggled with since the very beginning of the church. Having our practice match our profession. In his letter to the Romans, Paul addresses this issue again saying, What shall we then say? Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Sound familiar? Faith in Christ means total commitment to and union with Christ. And this is necessarily going to work itself out in a changed life. Now, I expect if I was to take a poll of you guys, poll of the audience, so to speak, most of you would hardly agree with what I just said. I do believe this. But has that belief changed you? Have you done anything about that belief? Are you training yourself in righteousness? And when I say changed here, please don't misunderstand me. Paul is not talking about some sort of perfect standard where, you know, I have come to Christ, I put my hope in Christ, and now I'm never going to fail again. It's onwards and upwards. There's not going to be any steps back, there's not going to be any troubles, just going to go heavenward. The only person who actually achieved that was the thief on the cross because he died shortly thereafter. (laughs) You see, you will fail. I'm going to fail. We are all going to fail. But the question is, what is the trajectory of your life? When you look back on the last two, three, four years, has your life been marked by increasing conformity to God's word and desires? Is the fruit of your life love, holiness, joy in increasing measure? Or is it anger, division, slander? And if it's been the latter, you know, we need to stop and soberly ask ourselves, why? Why am I not being increasingly conformed to Christ? We need to repent and look to God to change us. Trusting that he already has, we step out in faith, trusting that he's going to conform us. He's going to make us like him. And this is not being lazy, waiting for it to be easy. But we're going to press ahead, press ahead to reach the goal for which we've been called heavenward in Christ. This is why every week, as we did today, we do a time of confession. Because we're going to fail. I'm going to fail. You're going to fail. We're all going to fail. But our belief that Christ has changed us and that he's sacrificed himself on our behalf, it compels us to come before God in repentance to confess our sin and ask him to change us again. What we do here, what I'm talking about here, is not work to gain God's favor, but it's an act of worship because we already have his favor. Two old hymns I love. More about Jesus I would know more of his grace to others show, more of his saving fullness see, 
more of his love who died for me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Father God, your word is amazing. Your gospel, the good news that you have come and you died on our behalf, that you have done the work that we do not have to measure up because you have already paid the price. Lord, that's what brings us together today. We are in awe of this. We are in awe of the glory of what you have done. And Lord, we come and we repent because we have not acted like we believe that. We have put our hope in ourselves to change ourselves. And we have given in to our sin and said we would rather wallow in our sin and go back to our sin than pursue you. And so, Father God, I ask you would forgive us and that you would transform us and by the power of your Spirit, you would push us forward into more likeness of you. I pray, Father God, that your word would settle deep into our hearts. I pray that your word would not return void this morning. I pray all these things in your name, the precious name, of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.